We advise our listeners that content for this episode may be disturbing. Discretion is advised. The International Labour Organization believes there are almost 21 million victims of trafficking around the world. The UN's most recent report found almost half of the victims were forced to work, typically in factories, restaurants and building sites. The majority, 53%, were exploited in the sex industry. Twelve countries reported trafficking for organ removal. The rest of the victims were forced into petty crime or begging or were children thrown into armed conflict. I was trafficked in my early 20s by a man that I really thought cared about me. He abused me, starved me, and then eventually uh, sold me. I think what most people think is once you're away from that abuse that like things go back to normal, <laughs> but there really isn't um, there really isn't a normal after that. Rebecca Carey is a survivor of human trafficking. It's considered among the fastest growing criminal industries in the world. Welcome back. Now, scores of young women go missing every single day in South Africa, chasing job opportunities. But in the latest incident now, KwaZulu-Natal police rescued four women from a Durban North house. They'd been falsely promised jobs at a call center when in reality, they were being sold into the sex trade. Show me the money. The economy of human life the real truth behind human trafficking. I warmly welcome you to this penultimate episode of Season 3 of Let's Talk Human Rights. At the very core of this inhumane trade, if one were to label it as such, human trafficking not only robs innocent people of their dignity, but ultimately the very existence of their lives. What we have come to understand of human trafficking, or what can be said of it, being a system of modern slavery, is that it is very much a cartel-based operation and also that it has multiple avenues of acquisition. It shapes and molds itself around pre-existing and emerging human behavior and trends. This means that curbing it also becomes a very difficult task because of its opportunistic nature, giving it the bandwidth to sustain itself at the cost and the right to human life and dignity. In this episode journey, I am joined by my fellow FNF colleague, Ms. Judy Kaberia, in the Nairobi Global Partnership Hub Office in Nairobi, and Ms. Tertia de Klerk from the Joseph Movement in Cape Town. Today, we look at the increasing threat and prevalence of human trafficking. My heart and mind have been heavily laden while researching this topic. My two guests today, come with a wealth of experience and knowledge which they will share with us today. Judy Kaberia is a multiple award-winning journalist currently working for Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom East Africa. With over 16 years of experience in journalism, Judy is deeply passionate about public policy, human rights, transitional justice and gender equality. She is a 2015 fellow of the prestigious Edward R. Murrow program for journalists and fellow of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Judy, who is the immediate winner of the Africa Labor Migration Awards in the Migration and Health category, was in 2020 recognized for her role in exploring cases of human trafficking in East Africa. Judy, I warmly welcome you to this episode. Judy, your extensive library of work and interaction on the subject matter 
has brought you closer to the realities of victims of human trafficking. You also enlightened me on the bigger picture of this phenomenon. Please take us through the definition and types of human trafficking that exist. Many people, like myself, assume that human trafficking only involves the illegal and sometimes legal form of moving people across borders. Yes, um, human trafficking, um, if you look at the definition, is not just transborder. It's also happens within the country. And human trafficking, and the reason why we have the word trafficking is because there's a movement from point A to point B. And this movement from point A to point B can be within the country or outside the country. And within the countries, we realize actually that is the highest form of uh, human trafficking that we experience because we don't see it as a crime. And if we are to look at the types of human trafficking, for example, the most uh, common one is uh, trafficking for uh, labor exploitation. That's domestic servitude. And this one happens internally and also externally. We also look at trafficking of body organs, especially among people with albinism. And they're trafficked. And here in this case, it's basically murdering them for harvesting of their body organs, their body parts, mostly the bone, which is used for witchcraft. We also have a different type of trafficking, which is very common between Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Burundi, and Rwanda. That is trafficking for begging. So we have people with special needs, people with disabilities who are trafficked for the sake of begging. We also have trafficking for the sake of uh, sexual exploitation. And this is really commercialized because this is where underage girls below the age of 18 and even younger women up to the age of 25 are trafficked um, uh, for the purposes of uh, sex exploitation. So those are the different types that we have. But I must say that the biggest of them all is trafficking for domestic servitude, which is close to slavery. Judy, what are we observing currently in terms of cases, trends and maybe incidents coming from the region? You've just given us some examples around uh, forced begging, um, labor, uh, harvesting of body organs. Can we maybe also speak to some statistics if, if you have those on record? Yes, first, if you look at uh, the main reason behind human trafficking, it's a commercial entity uh, involving billions and billions of dollars. It's not a small uh, business. It's ran uh, both locally and internationally and with very powerful people across the globe. That is why every year, thousands and thousands of girls, especially to the Middle East, specifically to Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, the numbers are quite high. If we look at uh, the movement, it's uh, for domestic uh, servitude. It's mostly from the East African countries. But also when you go to the lower parts of, the, of Africa, again, we see a lot of movement. And this is because the countries in Africa are making a lot of money in terms of uh, domestic, um, domestic input and the money that is coming from outside. So because of that commercial part of it and the value that countries continue to enjoy, uh, human trafficking drives. And if you ask the statistics about the people being trafficked, majority of them are women. And remember earlier on, we said uh, domestic servitude, kind of slavery for labor is the commonest uh, uh, type of human trafficking. And because of that, more women are affected compared to the men. And so it's hard to keep the numbers because this is an underworld activity um, and a lot of information is not released. But on um, appro appropriation, we can decide that uh, in a week, close to a thousand girls, women are trafficked to the Middle East for the purposes of uh, domestic servitude. 
But also we have also people trafficked, even in countries in Europe, in the U.S., and not clear circumstances, not the legal processes, but because it's a criminal activity, we don't have the legal or the statistics that are formal. All we get to hear is when we get cases of those who are killed, cases of those who are exploited, cases of those who are injured and tortured. That's when we are able to estimate how many women are trafficked within Africa, outside Africa, to the Middle East and to the Europe and the U.S., Judy, this is certainly worrying. And if one thinks about what you've just shared with us, one really then worries about the systematic nature of what this looks like and who are the actors who are really involved in this and keep the momentum and and, and this commercial industry from from thriving. Um, While we speak of systems, if I may tap into your journalism background here, the Kafala system. Please take us through what this is and what are the stories and examples from victims, how this links to our discussion today. When you talk about the Kafala system, I remember it's like it was yesterday. I had a one-on-one interaction with the returnees from Saudi, Lebanon, basically from the Arab Gulf. And the stories are really sad. One of them was um, a young lady. She was 25. She moved to Lebanon to work as a nursery school teacher. But when she got there, she started working as a maid under the kafala system. The kafala system is the modern-day slavery. What it means is in slavery is if I hire you, I can do to you what I want. I can pay you how much money I want. I can have sex with you at whatever I want. And anybody in the family can have sex with you. And this young 25-year-old girl was abused by the father of the house, the son of the house, And when she came back to the country, she was completely disfigured. She had to go through surgery just to correct her pelvic bone because it was completely um, misplaced. And that's not not the only case. The second case I handled was another young woman at 23 years of age. She was already pregnant. She could not tell whether the father of the child was the son or the father of that house. The same case to her. And I tried to understand what really happens with the kafala system. So kafala system is one that worships slavery. It's modern day slavery, that you are trafficked as a, a commodity, that you can do with your commodity whatever you want. And once you go through the kafala system, and this is common with Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, and that's why even if we make how much noise, unless our countries have an intergovernmental discussion with these countries, this one will continue because the law of the land is supreme in those countries. And for as long as we have the kafala system, which um, uh, uh, celebrates slavery, then women will continue suffering. They'll continue getting abused. Other cases, women every day are being flown back to their countries, dead corpses. At least, for example, for the case of Kenya, every week we are receiving not less than seven bodies of women who have either been killed Other families cannot even be able to trace their loved ones. It's just a sad state. But like I say, the governments look at what comes in, the money that comes in. And because of the money that is coming in, they remain silent. They turn a blind eye to the suffering, the violation, the stolen liberties of the people who cannot choose about how much they uh, they should be paid. They cannot decide on the number of the working hours. These women, they'll tell you, they will sleep only for two hours. Even things like food. They're only allowed to eat what remains after the entire family has eaten. If the food is finished, then they don't have even something to eat. Actually, it's something I would not expect to be happening in the 20th century. This is something that started in the 19th century uh, in the Gulf Persian, which was really known for slavery. 
it goes way back to the colonization, which was um, uh, celebrating slavery. But it's so embarrassing that in the 20th century, we still talk of places where employees have no rights. And another thing I must mention to you is that women sign contracts that are written in Arabic. These women are very vulnerable from poor background, people who've never been to the city before. And when they come, they're given a contract written in Arabic and they have to sign. When they sign, they don't know what they're signing to. And the kafala system, again, says that you have to work for the period that is noted. So a lot of times they have to work for two years and they cannot leave because the authority rests upon the boss. It keeps the passport, um, your travel documents, and they're the only ones who can decide when to stop working and when you can leave. Even if you run away from your employer or from the master, as they are called, and you go to the embassy or to the immigration office, you are told we have to get the permission of the employer. Judy, it has indeed been a pleasure having you for this conversation. You've really enlightened us and given us the bigger picture in terms of what this looks like, the picture of human trafficking in the region. And as we think about bringing the conversation closer to home, what does this look like from a country context in South Africa? Following on my conversation with Judy, I wish to bring this discussion closer to home. What does this look like for South Africa? I'm now joined by Tersha de Klerk to shed some more light on this topic. Tersha de Klerk is the founder and managing director of the Joseph Movement. She is a member of the National Freedom Network and continues building relationships and collaborating with various network partners, anti-human trafficking NPOs, companies, media, and government bodies. She studied psychology and is currently furthering her criminology studies. She has gained experience in both the corporate and nonprofit arena. Her passion for speaking up for the vulnerable grew within her 15 years working with nonprofit organizations, Christian organizations, mission organizations, as well as social and political awareness organizations. Welcome, Tisha. Thank you, Masi Chaba. Very nice to be with you today. And indeed a pleasure to have you here, Tisha. Let's take it from the beginning. How do people get trafficked? So when it comes to human trafficking, we need to always remember that one of the most important facts of human trafficking is that transportation is not a prerequisite for human trafficking to take place. And then when it comes to the uh, the description of what is human trafficking exactly, just to simplify it, it takes place when a person's either forced, coerced or manipulated um, into a situation for the use of their body or for their labor. And the various ways that trafficking takes place nowadays, we've seen with those that actually work on the ground with cases, One of the most popular ways in which victims are being uh, tricked and trapped into human trafficking, number one, is very interesting enough, uh, false job advertisements or job offers. And then secondly comes in people that are being sold by family And that I want to link with what I mentioned earlier, that transportation is not a prerequisite. We see, especially now during um, or after COVID, that 
so many children and even women are being prostituted out of their own homes um, by a lover or by a husband or a parent. And that is a form of human trafficking. And so no transportation or movement happened, but it is human trafficking as a whole or a, a form of sex trafficking. And then thirdly, we see that the lover boy effect comes in as another form of how people are being tricked into human trafficking. And then being trafficked by a friend comes in at number four. And then only fifthly does abduction come into play. So we see that in media or in the mainstream media, it's normally abduction and kidnappings that's, that make the headlines. However, the biggest chunk of human trafficking that takes place are actually situations that happen right under our noses. And so we do try as an organization to also educate the media and encourage them to not only focus on these so-called juicy stories of kidnappings and abductions, which are definitely real, but most of the human trafficking situations are happening next to us in our neighborhoods, down the streets, in our communities. And that is very, very important for um, you know, the public to grasp. Tisha, thank you for 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 giving us that 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 outline. Um, following on from what you've just said, um, you've given us examples of the type of trafficking, human trafficking that happens in country, in the exception of people crossing borders. And this really brings in something that. Um, Judy mentioned in our earlier segment about the fact that it's the the high prevalence of trafficking actually is the one that happens within country. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the work, the very, very important work that is done by the Joseph movement. You've mentioned some examples, but um, understanding that um, respectfully, you cannot speak freely and openly about specific cases as most of them are subjudice. What are some of the cases that are or at least some of the examples that are coming through now prevalent, say within the last year or so? Well, some of the most prevalent cases that we have found happening around us, besides the the, the sex trade and sex trafficking, which makes out um, the biggest chunk of human trafficking that takes place within South Africa, we've also seen that labor trafficking has been skyrocketing. And what's been happening is a lot of people are falling for, out of desperation, for uh, fake job offers, for instance. And then also we see an influx of foreigners, you know, coming into our country for a hope of a better future um, and that is one thing as well that I, I just want to emphasize is that when we say that people's vulnerabilities are being exploited, it is not just, you know, you're maybe a woman or a child and you are vulnerable or you are desperate for an income. Um, it is also people's dreams, you know, that are being exploited. So we see that these foreigners are coming in with this this dream of a better future, and they are being exploited by um, our own people even. 
we have dealt with some cases in well-known uh, shopping malls where there are foreigners working in specific um, types of shops and they were tricked into coming into our country with a promise of a wonderful income and um, as they entered our country, their identification documents were taken away. They then immediately switch into fear mode because they are threatened with the authorities. They Their lives are threatened and their lives of their loved ones are threatened. So this has become a lot more prevalent. That's why I'm saying that there are so many victims that are right under our noses. And it's very important for us to learn how to identify possible human trafficking uh, victims just by some simple red flags and asking some simple questions. One can identify a possible victim and uh, take action. So when it comes to what the Joseph movement does is our main focus is to reduce, expose and prevent human trafficking and we've seen that only 2% of victims ever get extracted or manage to escape. And what does that say to you? It says that prevention is key. Um, we are currently looking at our government who is considering legalizing the system of prostitution within our country. And that will just explode um, or make the human trafficking um, sphere explode because prostitution fuels human trafficking. So prevention is absolute key. We need to educate, and that is our main focus as the Joseph Movement, is to educate and to equip um, individuals, families, and communities so that they know what to look out for, so that they know how to identify a victim and so that they know what they can do um, to keep themselves safe and also to possibly save a life. Tasha, if you could talk us through the process of what prevention, extraction and rehabilitation looks like. And what part does the Joseph movement play in that? We focus mainly on prevention because of the statistics that we see. And our statistics come from reliable sources. We do not draw statistics from governments, for instance. We draw our statistics from people who do this work most, mostly voluntarily. Um, we get our statistics from our National Human Trafficking Hotline. And we get it from the Global Slavery Index and also from the United Nations. And so we focus on prevention mainly because that is absolute key because of only the 2% that ever gets saved or manages to escape. So we do, however, work within a network of organizations um, and also professional individuals. And each focuses on a specific area of human trafficking or sexual exploitation. And there is a very small percentage of them that focuses on extraction and rehabilitation. So with the extraction work that's being done, the National Human Trafficking Hotline works very closely 
with, um, you know, a mandated departments that come on board and address um, or even investigate possible human trafficking situations. And then from there, it gets escalated to the Hawks, who um, does absolutely amazing work. And then we also work with uh, safe houses. However, the safe houses is an area where victims are um, housed, they are taught life skills, they are counseled only for a period um, in which their case runs. So as soon as a case um, is finalized or closed in court, those victims are then reintegrated into society. However, there is a very big gap within South Africa because only a few weeks or even just a few months is not enough for proper rehabilitation for many of these victims, especially um, victims who come from uh, the, the um, sex industry. So that is a massive gap that um, we really do need to try and, and fill within South Africa. Tisha, I'm very glad that you've brought us to the part of the conversation that speaks about the legalities um, behind what happens and, and the support, recourse, prosecutions. Personally, I struggle uh, with the success rate or what I perceive as the uh, lack of communication around success rate of prosecutions or people even being brought on charges of human trafficking. One often gets the sense that, you know, you hear of the breaking stories which leave us shaken, but then very little is said about what happens afterwards. I'm even thinking specifically to international law, statutes which uh, protect, which speak to the issue of human trafficking, such as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, also known as TVPA. Without maybe speaking too much about international law and how it stands, what I would really like to know is what is the success rate of clamping down on some of these operations, especially now that you've spoken about the fact that, um, you know, the gaps in the system that are missing in the South African case and also the support, um, the continuation of, of what support looks like, what prosecution looks like, especially, you know, with, with resources and funding being a scarcity. Yes, I can completely identify with you, Masichaba, because the success rate is unfortunately very low. As I mentioned earlier, we're only looking at a maximum of 2% of victims that ever get rescued. And that is from what we know. So there are a few cases um, in courts that have been very successful. There are some that are still on the go. And a number of NGOs are also stepping in to assist, to investigate. And what we want to encourage, you know, the public is what will assist us is the more people report on human trafficking cases, the more pieces of a puzzle we will have and the more we will be able to prosecute and that is a very big problem that we face currently because we've heard earlier with our previous guest that 
it's as you said it's it's a, something that's happening underground it is in fact a hidden crime and the problem with that is that we would find for instance that it is other, overshadowed by other crimes we often have to um work with saps where we have to train saps because we see that for instance you would have a drug bust and people will get locked up because of their um use their drug use or um for the the drug trade or for drug trafficking etc but then saps would often overlook a victim of trafficking when you look at sex trafficking many of those women and with all honesty it is a bigger chunk um of women but it's not only women it's children and they are also men um that that fall victim to sex trafficking but many of them are kept in modern day shackles which are not just fear but it is also being dependent on substance abuse so we find that often trafficked victims are locked up for instance for drug use but in the meantime they are actually trafficked victims so these challenges are what we are facing and what we are fighting because education once again is key and that is really lacking in south africa and that is where many of us ngos um have to step in and try and make a difference and even educate um government bodies or individuals including saps for instance so that we can have a much higher conviction rate south africa has what we call the pakotip acts it's the prevention and combating of trafficking in persons act and it's actually uh said to be the best form of legislation globally when it comes to human trafficking however it's not being implemented properly so a piece of legislation or as we know you know any rule can be effective if it's followed or implemented properly so these are some of the challenges that we are facing Tasha I'm so glad you actually speak of that um as I was speaking about the the act um the trafficking victims protection act of 2000 and the act that you've now just referred to of course everything is always good in writing but um if it's actually not domesticated and legislated as you say then that's a completely different conversation then it's it's toothless essentially it doesn't do anything and um just coming to um speaking about saps which is the south african police service for the benefit of our listeners um you know we we've often seen sometimes uh, very disheartening um as we speak about combating and preventing the scourge within society and to open the discussion you know on this very worrying issue um corruption unfortunately in the system is something that one cannot speak in the absence of this particular conversation about human trafficking what is the disruptor in in the case of human trafficking where corruption is concerned i know you and i um spoke offline about it but if you can maybe just give us some examples about what you know the the status of corruption and how certain things you know can also happen in terms of collusion or anything like that with regards to the combating and prevention maybe even people who promulgate 
uh, within the legal system um, and, and abuse the system as well. Yes, most definitely. We see that corruption within the authorities and within governments, unfortunately, is busy fueling human trafficking. And I'm very privileged to work with people who, whose hearts are really for the cause. Many have dedicated their lives to doing this work and some are not earning any form of income for the work they are doing. So you know for sure that their hearts are true to the cause and that it's not possible for any corruption to to sneak in. So from some of those people who have actually been part of the South African Police Service, they have spoken up and have just said, you know, it is time for us to no longer keep silent. And unfortunately, these are people who have seen firsthand the corruption within our um, authorities, within government, etc., that takes place. And they have to be called to account. There are reporting lines um, or complaint lines that are available that we want to encourage, you know, the public to use. We need to all stand up against corruption because unfortunately, with human trafficking, it does not only affect individuals, it it destroys families, it affects communities, it affects our economy, it affects businesses. You know, I'm, it just makes me think of a panel discussion that I was part of last night where I was discussing the topic of full decriminalization of prostitution and the two people that was part of the panel were completely pro uh, full decrim of prostitution. And it just made me realize that our country really needs to be rescued um, we see that from their arguments, they were saying that, you know, police and so on are playing such a big role in making the lives difficult of those in the system of prostitution, as I would call them, but they would, they would talk about sex work or sex workers. And I just found it so ironic because... We know and we have seen that, you know, there are so many victims that come from the system of prostitution that come and tell their story of how they have been treated by police, by government officials while they were in the system of prostitution. And we have so many case studies of people who, after years of rehabilitation, have come to a point and have been willing to speak up as a survivor. And we find it very interesting now with this debate on legalizing prostitution in our country that the voices of the survivors are not being heard. However, the voices of those within the sex work industry are very loud. 
And it is a very difficult, a very difficult uh, debate because on the one side, they would say to you, you know, that we need the police to look after us. They are victimizing us because um, our people are being locked up for sex work and their rights need to be protected and all of that. In the meantime, what we are seeing is that many of these people that are called sex workers are being locked up because it's actually against the law to, in our country to be, um, to be selling sex. But in many cases, they are not being locked up for that. They are being locked up for their drug use. And often it is overlooked that these women are not just simply sex workers. They are victims of sex trafficking. This is definitely a very important issue to highlight, Tish. And, and, and thank you for, for painting the, the picture, for the reality of what it actually looks like for victims, for, for our benefit of our listeners. Um, because I think at times, as I mentioned before, that we really don't see what happens behind the screens, be, behind what is supposed to be happening around prosecution of cases and um, you know what that really looks like for victims and, and those who are innocent. Tish, on that note, um, I'd like to speak about your activism. What inspired you to walk this path and find a personal cause with being a human rights defender in this space? And I'd like you, please, also to just take us through some of the highs and the lows of your daily work. And I can only imagine the incredibly difficult task of what that looks like, given the examples that we've been discussing in our conversation. A number of years ago, um, a loved one became a consumer of pornography and then eventually became addicted to pornography. And that then led to alcoholism. We know with many, with many addictions, it tends to lead to another addiction. And the reason why I say that he was addicted to pornography is that it was something that he couldn't stay away from. It was something that, you know, consumed his life. It had a very strong mental effect on him. And it actually affected his ability to communicate, to sit in a normal conversation and, and have a meaningful conversation with someone. It also affected, obviously, his concentration patterns and his income and all of that. So it led also to alcoholism and then eventually it led to suicide. And in my search to understand his struggles, I discovered a more horrifying side to the story. And that is human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Because pornography, as well as prostitution, fuels human trafficking. And when I went into it in more depth, I knew that this was my calling in life. Not only to warn those in the communities of the dangers of the use of pornography, but also that there's a two-sided story to it. As a consumer of pornography, you actually can fall victim to it. But also the person 
on your screen or in front of the camera that seems to be enjoying themselves can possibly also be a victim, a victim of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And so some of the the lows that I find I face um, every day or, or often is, you know, you, you would receive intel from your network of partners and organizations. And often that, that information has to stay strictly confidential. There is a lot that we hear about. There's a lot that we see that makes us understand the true face of human trafficking. And one has to be very, very careful in you know, debriefing basically um, is very important for us so that we can continue to stay strong um, from a mental and a psychological perspective. And, you know, corruption as well within the system and government can become very disheartening. And then, you know, my work is what gets me out of bed every morning, knowing that your small part that you play can help save a life. Even in all the work that I've been doing, if I can just save one life, it is worth it. Tisha, it's always, um, it really does um, make it more sobering when you um, attach or you reflect on a personal experience, um, one that helps shape your thought process and even what you go through life experiencing. I think um, people can definitely attest to the fact that once you put a face, uh, a family member, a friend, you know, it really does, uh, it hits home. And um, I think that's, one can really commend you for for taking this path. Um, and, and, and we are grateful for the work that you do. You know, freedom is a fundamental right. It's a basic right. It's something that the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, rightfully in its name, advocates for. Would you say that people are truly free? Um, is this a utopic idea? As we reimagine a world free from this threat to human dignity and even the right to life itself, ultimately. You know, I will say that, yes, we are free. We are most certainly, we are free to be educated. We are free to be equipped and informed and free to make an informed decision. And that is why education and empowerment is absolutely key. And, you know, we're also free to consider what impact our choices will have on on not just ourselves and our families, but also on our neighbor. And that is something that is so fundamentally important. And I find that that is very lacking with some people who, um, you know, who are encouraging and fighting for freedom. You have to actually ask yourself, what do you mean by freedom? What does freedom mean to you? Is it something that is selfish? Or is it something that does not only include your best interests, but it also includes the best interest of those around you? Thank you, Tosha. Um, it's really been uh, valuable and, and, and truly insightful. I definitely walk away from this conversation more equipped and definitely um, ready 
to, to, to face the world and, and see it in a different way. It was really such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. My conversations with Judy and Tersha have been frightening, to say the least, and also a point of reckoning in some senses. It has also served as an opportunity to reflect on where we as people have come to and what we do to each other. Forgoing the basic human compassion and dignity needed for a just society, and quite honestly, the cruelty prevalent in so many aspects of our society. Something I'm left with is our personal responsibility towards ourselves and towards each other, and in many different ways. Perhaps you're not part of this underworld, but educating yourself and the people in your circle is really key in identifying and bringing attention to these human rights violations. My right, your right, our right. Humanity is for us all. This has been the fifth episode of the third season of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. We trust you have been enlightened and informed by it. In our upcoming season finale two-part episode, we will reflect on the past three seasons. We have explored and discussed with our phenomenal experts and human rights defenders on several issues across various countries in Africa. Many stories, so many people's lives in short moments. We specifically delve into the Malabo Protocol on the African Court. We will unpack the purpose and formation of the African Court, its mandate, and how it ultimately seeks recourse and justice for the many victims across the continent who have faced personal adversity and atrocities on their person or within their society. Please tune in for this important closing episode that provides the opportunity to interrogate the legislative powers of the continental bodies we entrust to safeguard and balance authority in our respective countries. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Sahara Africa, FNF, is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQIA rights, and engages against violence targeting women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Friedrich Naumann Foundation Africa.